0: Hello everyone. How you doing? Great. Great to be with you today, whether you're worshiping me with us live here on our West Campus or on our Facebook live stream. You familiar with the show Shark Week from Discovery Channel. So a few weeks ago, I was kind of thumbing through the stations and I saw Mike Tyson versus Jaws. Have you seen that? Mike Tyson, the boxer versus Jaws. So I'm going to prepare you this morning. This message this morning is going to have a little bit of a feel of a Mike Tyson right cross, okay? So we're not dancing around this passage at all. So grab your Bibles, uh, grab your Bible app, and uh, let's enter the boxing ring together. So each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Write those verses down. James 1, 14 and 15. James 1, 14 and 15. Please commit that verse to memory. That was written by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he wrote to the early church about the perils of sin. James believed that there was a progression For sin, there was a desire for sin. First, next comes the birth of sin, and then finally comes death through sin. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. What is sin? What is sin? Sin is is a riddle. Sin is a mystery. It's a reality that eludes definition and comprehension. Perhaps we most often think of sin as wrongdoing or transgression of God's law. Sin includes a failure to do what is right, but sin also offends people. It is a violence and a lovelessness toward other people and ultimately a rebellion against God. Further, the Bible teaches that sin involves a condition in which the heart is corrupted and inclined toward evil. What is sin? I think sin is doing something That God does not want you to do. Pastor Matt Chandler tells a story about a series of episodes, TV show called When Animals Attack. This uh, show was on in the mid-90s, and there's a particular episode where there's a man that has a lion on a chain, on a leash, walking this lion like a dog. He tells the lion to sit, and the lion sits. He tells the lion to lie down, and the lion lies down. You begin to think to yourself, I want one of those. I want one of those, right? So then the scene comes when there's a woman in a swimsuit, and she's holding this bottle of shampoo, and she is shampooing this lion. So the lion smacks the bottle of shampoo out of the woman's hand and mauls the woman. And people that are interviewed there, they just cannot believe that that lion mauled this woman how could that happen what (laughs) of course the lion mauled the woman they're predators right lions are predators so that i think is a perfect picture of sin you feel like you can control sin you feel like you can tame sin sin won't hurt you and then what happens sin attacks sin strikes And you are left wondering how in the world this particular thing could have happened to you. You're kind of like that trainer of that lion who said, I still understand how this could happen. I raised that lion since he was a cub. Friends, there is a progression to sin. There is a desire for sin. There is a birth to sin, and there is death through sin. Our text today is John 13, 18 through 30. This is our fifth sermon in our series, The Servant King. We are learning to live and love like Jesus, our King. Last week, Phil preached at our Newburgh campus. I preached here at our West campus. We saw Jesus wash the feet of his disciples. The betrayal of Jesus is foreshadowed. Jesus demonstrates humility, he desires purity in us and inheritance. For us, he calls us to to serve humbly alongside him, and he sends us on mission with him. And now we're going to extend our teaching from last week. So this passage continues the scene of Jesus with his disciples at the Passover meal. We can title this message "Belief and Betrayal." Belief and betrayal. And what we're going to do here—it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to parallel this passage. John 13, 18 through 30, with a fictional story. Okay? Everybody with me? I'm going to tell you a story about a guy named Frank. You don't know Frank. Frank's a made up guy. You don't know him at all, okay? So we're going to see that first comes a desire for sin. So, Frank is married to Alice, they have three young children. They live in a very nice subdivision. Frank has a great job at a medical products company. So there is a lady that comes to join his firm, and she is a receptionist in his department. So she talks to Frank a lot, kind of flirts with Frank a little bit. Nothing, nothing bad, harmless at this point. This lady is a few years younger than Frank. She is not married um, and uh, she's attractive. So Frank kind of wonders what this lady has in mind. So Frank invites her to have a drink after dinner. I'm sorry, drink after work sometimes. So first comes the desire for sin. Next comes the birth of sin. So Frank and the lady from the office uh, go go out for a drink after work. And they begin to make that kind of a, a regular event, just friends getting together. Frank wonders if this lady wants something more. So one day she asks Frank, Do you really love Alice? Do you really love your wife? Uh oh. <laughs> uh oh. So Alice, Frank's wife, takes the kids away for a weekend with her parents. And Frank invites the lady from the office over for dinner. And what begins in innocence ends in adultery. All right, let's get to our text. Jesus says in John 13, 18, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts me accepts the one who sends me. Jesus states that his betrayal is a fulfillment of Scripture. The disciples are each loved by Jesus, including the betrayer. The disciples are each chosen by Jesus, including the betrayer. The big question to the disciples is, who, who, who is the betrayer? Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. In verse 21, we see the humanity of Jesus. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and he testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at each other at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned or gestured to this particular disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? So in this section of scripture, we see Jesus announces a betrayer. The disciples had followed Jesus for over three years. They did everything together. They were intimate friends with Jesus. They were intimate friends with one another. Travel, teaching, the miracles, the conflict with the Jewish leaders. They were a band of brothers. These guys seemed inseparable. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. That seems impossible. How could that be? Matthew reports in his eyewitness account, They were very sad, and the disciples began to say to him one after the other, Surely, Lord, surely you don't mean me. Each of the disciples, including the betrayer, looked inwardly. Imagine how confusing that moment was for the disciples, much less how difficult of a moment this was for Jesus. I think John captures this moment really, really well when he writes, They stared at each other. They stared at each other. You could probably hear a pin drop in this moment. So John claims that Jesus is troubled in spirit. And this is the same phrase used whenever Jesus sees Mary weeping over Lazarus in John 12. It's the same phrase used when Jesus predicts his own death in John uh, 12. So Jesus is stirred up. He is agitated. Jesus is disturbed. He bears witness to this betrayer. Betrayal is a sin, and imagine committing that sin directly to the face of Jesus. When you betray someone, you literally entrust yourself, commit yourself, deliver yourself to that person, to someone else, to another doctrine. You follow their doctrine. So after three years of following Jesus, one of them would betray him. One of them would abandon him. New Testament scholar Rodney Whitaker writes, in his anguish we see revealed the effects of our sin on the heart of God from the very first rebellion in the garden right up to the most recent sin you and I have committed today. Next, John introduces the first time in his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John mentioned this individual several times later in his, in his account Mostly with connection to Peter. So, most notably in John 20, where the disciple whom Jesus loved outruns Peter to the tomb of Jesus. Most scholars believe that that person mentioned by John is John himself, the author of the gospel. He's referring to himself when he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It may seem to be an arrogant <laughs> comment, right? But no doubt, all of the dis- Jesus loved all of these disciples. But rather, I believe John really here is in awe of the grace of God, kind of like, I'm not worthy of the love of Jesus. Although John never disparages Peter in his documented accounts with them, John generally presents himself as a superior disciple to Peter. While Peter ultimately is redeemed, John continuously documents. Peter's stumbling and his bumbling in his account. New Testament scholar Gerald Borchardt claims the two portraits of John and Peter, when taken together, epitomize the two sides of most followers of Jesus. First, the side that at times can model for others the life that Jesus intended for his disciples. That's, That's the picture of John. And second, the side that struggles valiantly to overcome failure and well-meant understanding. And that is the side depicting Peter. So on cue, Peter springs into action. He's ready to go. The disciples are reclining at the table in this moment. This is a, a typical seating style for an important Jewish event like the Passover meal. Probably each leaning on their left elbows, They're using their right hands to eat, and their feet are likely spread out behind them. So Peter must be pretty close to John as he is able to whisper to him, ask him which one he means. John is reclined likely to the right uh, of Jesus around the table. This was the seat of honor for John. And we will see in our next section actually that uh, the betrayer (laughs) is to the left of Jesus. Oddly enough, an even greater seat of honor for the betrayer. John responds, and he asks Jesus, Lord, who is it? And John literally leans back into the bosom of Jesus, if you can picture that. And we're reminded here in this moment of John 1.18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. So John parallels his relationship with Jesus to that of Jesus's relationship with the Father. I don't know about you, but I personally just really, really desire that type of intimacy with Jesus. Well, the disciples are in suspense here, and Jesus drops a bomb. So in verse 26, Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread, or I will give this morsel when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. In these verses, we see Jesus reveals the betrayer. So although Jesus drops a bomb here, we need to recognize the ambiguity and the discreteness of this moment for the disciples. Peter may not have known what was happening. He is not mentioned again in this passage. John certainly knew what was happening in this moment, but oddly enough, John does nothing. Judas is keenly aware of what is happening in this moment. He instigates what John Piper calls history's most spectacular sin, the murder of Jesus The other nine disciples are completely and absolutely clueless, (laughs) and Jesus, as always, remains in complete control of the situation. In Jewish custom, offering a piece of bread or a piece of food to another was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of fellowship. It was a mark of honor to that person receiving that piece of food. In Matthew's account, Jesus is quoted as saying, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl will betray me. A little different situation. There's no handing of the morsel to Judas in Matthew's account. Regardless, we see both the physical and the relational closeness that Jesus has with Judas, the betrayer. Now, I believe this was the final act of love between Jesus and Judas. This is the final appeal for Judas to change his mind. What if Judas would not have accepted that morsel. What if Judas would have reversed course and said, no, 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 Jesus, it's not me. I'm not going to betray you. I love you. Clearly, the desire was there for sin for Judas, but had that sin really birthed yet? In this moment, Judas has a choice, but Judas failed, just like fictional Frank from our story. Judas sinned. Sin is birthed. In this moment, Judas betrayed. The sin of Judas was completely different than the sin of fictional Frank. It was not adultery. This was betrayal. Judas took the morsel. Gerald Borchard writes, rejecting Jesus was squarely on the shoulders of Judas. Judas was hardly a puppet. Satan did not need magic to enter Judas. All Satan needed was permission. All Satan needed was permission to take control. John writes, Satan entered him. Puts chills down my spine. Satan entered him. Some say Judas believed and Judas lost his faith. Others say Judas never believed in in Jesus. So that's a question for another sermon. We're We're not gonna tackle that one today. Nonetheless, we know a fact, and the fact is that Judas is cooked. (laughs) He is done. He is now at the hand of Satan, and there is no worse a place you could be. This is the only time that John mentions actually the name Satan in his gospel. So we know that Satan is a celestial being. Satan opposes God. He is the source of evil. Satan is the source of sin. Satan is referred to in scripture as the enemy, the evil one, the devil, the great dragon, the ancient serpent. Satan is the accuser. Satan is the adversary. Satan is the tempter. Satan caused the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4. 1 Peter 5.8 claims, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The world, the world is Satan's playpen, and he is looking for followers. John Piper, pastor, has scoured scripture in detail. He's researched the activities of Satan in scripture, and and Piper has identified a list of 10 strategies that Satan uses against us 10 strategies. Satan lies, and he is the father of lies. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. Satan masquerades in costumes of light and righteousness. Satan does signs and wonders. Satan tempts people to sin. Satan plucks the word of God out of people's hearts, and he chokes their faith. Satan causes some sickness and death himself. Satan is a murderer. Satan fights against the plans of missionaries. And Satan accuses Christians before God. I don't know know about you, but reading those 10 strategies kind of makes me want to step off the worship platform, go home and take a shower, doesn't it? All right. Let's finish our passage. So the stage is set. Verse 27 continues. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do it quickly, or literally, do it more quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So in these final verses, we see Jesus releases the betrayer. Jesus says, hurry up, Judas. You do what you're going to (laughs) do. Judas has his mind made up. No turning back now. Scripture must be fulfilled. It was God's timing now. Don't wait around, Jesus says. Do it now. The disciples are completely confused <laughs> by the whole situation, possibly because they only heard bits and pieces of Jesus' exchange there, or it could possibly also because they, their minds, they were set on earthly things as opposed to heavenly things. And then John captures that moment by saying it was night. So think about the timing here. So it is Thursday night, we know. From scripture. On Friday, Jesus is crucified. The very next day, Jesus is crucified. So later this evening, Jesus is arrested by the chief priests and the Pharisees. Judas hands Jesus over as John records in John 18. Now, mind you, this is a voluntary surrender by Jesus. Jesus could have smitten the entire group of soldiers if he wanted to, but that was not the father's plan, was it? Needless to say, Judas was obedient to Jesus' words. He certainly did it quickly. So the disciples see Judas scurrying off. The disciples are completely unaware of the significance of his abrupt departure from dinner. Judas was the treasurer for the brothers. He took care of the money, took care of the common purse for the guys. Judas has a desire for sin, we know though. John alludes to the character of Judas earlier in John 12, 6. John writes, Judas was a thief, and as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. That said, the disciples were completely unsuspecting. So just because a person is found in the company of believers does not make that person a believer. We must not assume to know the heart of a person. So disciples think Judas is fulfilling his duties for the group. They think Judas is going out to buy food for the feast, food for the weekend, the festival of unleavened bread. Or he could be giving alms to the poor. That was also a very common activity on Passover night. But what was Judas doing? It turns out he was putting in motion the event which would lead to the death of Jesus. The event that would save all humankind from their sins. So why did he do it? Why did Judas do it? Why did he betray Jesus? Did he do it for the money? Did he do it because of greed? Did greed take over? Matthew 26, 15 claims that Judas received 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. Did Judas expect Jesus to be a different kind of king, one that would overthrow Rome, one that would rule with power? Is that why he did it? (laughs) Or was he simply tempted by the evil one? Who knows? Who knows? Sin can sneak up on you and me, just like it snuck up on fictional Frank, just like it snuck up on Judas. So at the end of this passage, John makes the solemn statement. I love this. It was night. This provides a finality to the scene, a finality to this situation for Judas. Death comes through sin. Certainly, John wants to provide a timeline also for the events for his readers, but there's so, so, so much more here from John. Throughout John's book, John contrasts light and dark. He contrasts day and night. And in this moment, the darkness had come as Jesus had warned his disciples in John eleven nine 9, and 10. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. So in John 9, 4, Jesus claims that night is coming when no one can work. For Judas and for Jesus Night was here. My mom used to tell me when I was growing up that nothing good happens after midnight. (laughs) And now that I am over 50, I don't see a whole lot of midnights personally. (laughs) But am I right? The light provides illumination during the day, Uh, not at night. So in John 9, 5, Jesus claims, I am the light of the world at night bad things can happen. We lose accountability at night. Sometimes we lose perspective, we lose our rational thinking, we can lose our willpower against temptation at night. John claims John's claim that it was night could also say something about Judas. Kenneth Barker writes in the NIV Study Bible, "This could be a picture of the darkness of Judas's soul. Darkness is a symbol of gloom." Oppression, sin, and judgment. So back to our story about fictional Frank. What's going on with fictional Frank? First comes the desire for sin. Next comes the birth of sin. And finally, finally comes death through sin. So Frank realizes he has made a huge, huge mistake So first thing Monday morning, he goes to lay at the office, and he says, we are through. We are done. I'm not going to meet with you anymore. When Frank gets home, his wife, Alice, greets him at the door. She begins peppering him with questions. What did you do Saturday night? Did you have a woman at the house? A neighbor told me you had a woman at the house. Is the receptionist from the office... Are you having an affair, Frank? Frank is mortified. He is mortified. Frank comes clean. He tells Alice everything that he did. Alice is destroyed. Alice is destroyed. She will have none of it. She grabs the kids, moves out, and takes them to her parents' Frank works as hard as he can to try to get her to come back. Come back, Alice, but she will not. Three months later, the divorce is finalized. Finally comes death through sin. The story of Judas ends in death in just the same way. John writes in verse 30, it was night. That very night, Judas executes the betrayal of Jesus. The deed is done. Matthew 27 describes how early the next morning Judas realizes he has made a huge mistake. He comes clean. He tries to return the 30 pieces of silver to the Jewish leaders, to the chief priests and elders. But the Jewish officials, they have none of it. (laughs) What was done was done. The deed was done. Judas leaves the scene. And he hangs himself. Finally, finally comes death through sin. So, what do we learn? What do we learn from our story about fictional Frank? What do we learn from the life of Judas? Nip sin in the bud. Don't give Satan a foothold in your life. I'm going to say it again: nip sin in the bud. Don't give Satan a foothold. (laughs) Sounds easy enough, right? But we we better not kid ourselves. It's not easy. We need a game plan. We need a game plan. We want to enjoy the blessings of our faith in Jesus. We don't want our story to end like the story of fictional Frank. (laughs) We don't want our story to end like the story of Judas. So how can you do it? How can you nip sin in the bud? How can you keep Satan from getting a foothold in your life? First, first we need prayer. We need prayer. You will be tempted. You will. But temptation is not a sin, friends. It is what you do with that temptation that matters. Pray for God to help you in your weakness. What is your thing? (laughs) What is your sin? What brings you down? For fictional Frank, it was sexual sin. For Judas, it was probably greed. Maybe for you, you cover covet your neighbor's Mercedes. <laughs> Maybe you place your kid's sports activities above worshiping God. Maybe you sit and gossip with your friends about others at a lady's luncheon. I don't know what it is for you, but pray boldly against that sin in your life. Pray for God to help you keep your desire for sin at bay. Next, our situation may require repentance. Prayer naturally leads us to repent. You will sin. You will sin. You're going to do it. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Please don't be swallowed up in sorrow or despair because you failed yourself, because you failed someone else in your life that you love, because you failed god ask forgiveness from whom you have hurt repent to god for what you have done this sin does not have to end in death next in our game plan is avoidance stop going back to that sin stop going back to that sin that you've repented for stay away don't allow satan to lure you in Don't watch that R-rated movie with explicit sex scenes. Choose your profession based upon what is best for your family, not entirely on how much money you're going to make. Stay off Facebook, stay off Instagram, where that comparison game breeds coveting in your life. Tell the kids that Jesus comes first, even before sports. (laughs) Just say no to those gossip gatherings. So James 4.17 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Finally, you cannot resist Satan on your own. You need the power of prayer. You need a strategy for avoidance and you need community. You need community in your life. So surround yourself with Christ followers who have your personal protection at heart. Engage in a small group. Engage in in a support group of like-minded people. Seek Christian counseling. There's great Christian counseling in our community. Much, we could say, about Crossroads Counseling Department. So freedom prayer is another thing you can do. A freedom prayer session can be life-changing for you, for personal purity, and for spiritual cleansing. Enlist others. (laughs) Enlist others in your game plan. You, friends, can have hope in Jesus Remember the title of our sermon? What's the title of our sermon? Belief and Betrayal. Belief and Betrayal. What comes first? Belief. Belief comes first. Believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for that sin, that very sin that you are struggling with. Believe you are free. Believe you are forgiven. Believe that Jesus can deliver you in your struggle. Believe that God hears and answers every one of your prayers. Believe that Jesus is bigger than your temptation. Believe that God will protect you from death. Believe. Now I'd like to ask you to ask yourself, what is my foothold? Where has Satan gained a foothold in my life? I'm telling you, friends, you can have hope Jesus. Your story does not have to end in death. Pray against temptation. Repent whenever you stumble. Avoid the lure of Satan. Seek community in your life. So whether you are worshiping with us here on campus or online, we're going to give you a few minutes to reflect on this message. We're going to give you a minute or two to listen to God and respond to him as he prompts you. For those of you on campus, we have a reflection card here uh, at your seats. You can fill this out for yourself personally to kind of mark this moment. And we want you to know that our West Campus staff is here for you. Our care team is here for you. And if you're worshiping with us online, you can text the word NOW, N-O-W, to 812-402-0700. So I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then you can have a minute or two to reflect. Bow your heads with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, I recognize the heaviness of this moment, God. But what a joy it is to know that you sent your son, Jesus, so that we can have hope. God, life is not easy. We make mistakes. We sin. We need a game plan, God, and we need you to be right in the center of it. We want to pray. We want to repent. We want to avoid sin, God, and we want to seek communion in our lives. Will you help us with that, God? In your son's name that we pray. Amen.